Welcome into the 11 Dubcast presented by the Dry Goods Store at 11warriors.com. I am Bo Bishop, Johnny Ginter on the other end. I will acknowledge that this will be a little different show than we normally do. We typically have a guest and um, uh, we, we, we decided against that this week just because of the passing of former Ohio State head coach Earl Bruce. And frankly, this is one that hits really close to home for me, Johnny, as I, I knew Co- Coach Bruce very, very well. And um, I think that that between the two of us, we can do a pretty good job reflecting on the man. And um, my God, do I have stories? <laughs> yeah, I want to. I want to hear. I really want to hear your cachet of Earl Bruce stories. Honestly, yeah, we, it's it's pretty good. He was. Um, he's larger than life for a little dude. He, he wasn't the, the in stature. He wasn't the biggest of men. But I I don't know anybody who would ever walk across his stare. He had the most most piercing stare of, of any <laughs> any coach or former coach I've ever encountered. Um, I, I will say that, uh, when I first moved to Columbus, my, my only real recollection of him, and I, uh, before we get into some of the stories, I'm curious, uh, you know, you're jumping off point for Earl Bruce. You're younger than I, obviously you, I don't remember him coaching. I'm, I doubt you do either. Yeah. Um, my only real recollection of him is, is the, the famous, you know, Earl headband game, you know, right. against Michigan in 87. I mean, that was really, when I moved to Columbus, Ohio, that was the only point of reference I had for the man. What, what was your knowledge of Earl Bruce, um, you know, growing up in the state, you know, attending Ohio state and being a Buckeye fan? Yeah. You know what? I actually do have one Earl Bruce story, uh, believe it or not. And um, what's interesting is that as a kid, you know, I didn't really, I mean, I, I watched Ohio State football. I didn't get really emotionally invested into it until I was like in my teens, I guess. But I still watched the Ohio State Michigan game every single year as a kid. It was something that mattered to me. Um, it was a big deal. But I grew up during the Cooper years and I really only knew, like, the only thing I can really remember is watching John Cooper teams. But the reason why I knew who Earl Bruce was is because my dad and one of my neighbors growing up um, were heavily involved in this uh, scholarship program that Middletown High School does, where they put on this event called the Pigskin Round Ball. And they have a a speaker come from the basketball side of sports and then a speaker come from the football side of sports. And they typically recognize um, Middletonian athletes and then they give out scholarships to high school kids who are you know excelling in academics and in athletics and one of the first memories I have of that because uh, my dad did the audiovisual stuff for it every year was mm-hmm. uh, when Earl Bruce and uh, Gene Stallings uh, were uh, <laughs> actually at the Piskin Round Ball there were there were some of the speakers and so I got Earl Bruce's autograph when I was a really young kid and yeah. I because I was like maybe six or seven years old, I couldn't tell one old dude apart from another old dude. So I tried to get all their autographs and then I went back to Earl Bruce. Cause I didn't realize that I had already gotten his autograph and he was like, well, I'll sign it again, but I don't know that it's going to make it any more valuable. So I got embarrassed. And I ran away. Um, but that's my one Earl Bruce story. That's all I got. <laughs> yeah. He, um, so I'll just we'll tell some I'll tell some stories and we'll 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 reflect on on the man's life as as we knew him and um boy what a legacy. So I was blessed that upon arrival in Columbus I got to work at Channel 10. And getting to work at Channel 10 meant that I got to work with Dom Tiberi. And getting right. to work with Dom Tiberi and Paul Spahn who's the sports director at Channel 10 has been there 40 years. Dom's been there close to 30, got to be. Getting to work with Dom Tiberi and Paul Spahn meant that I got a front row seat to the relationships they had. 
and they took a liking to me upon moving to town. And so on Fridays, we would play golf really early in the morning at the golf club of Dublin on scholarship, of course. <laughs> right. <laughs> we would go out to the golf club of Dublin and we would have a tea time at quarter to seven or seven in the morning. And the first time that they asked me to play with them was the summer of 2007. And I showed up at the golf club of Dublin thinking I was going to play with Dom and, and Paul Spahn um, and Earl Bruce and John Cooper were there. And I obviously knew who they were. I was a sports guy, I obviously knew who they were. And I will tell you, it was, it was quite intimidating to play. I'm not a great golfer anyway, but it was quite intimidating to play with two guys who, you know, were coaching legends. What you immediately found out about the two of them is that what they really, what, what they both really loved was just the fellowship of, of the fellas. They, yeah. they loved the locker room. They liked to gossip about uh, college football, the NFL players. They wanted opinions. I had just come from Florida state and they would ask, you know, ask questions about Bobby or ask questions um, about, about Spurrier or whatever. But for the most part, it was us asking them questions. Dom would, would ride Earl like sea biscuit and he, he knew certain things that would get Earl fired up. Mm -hmm. And there's a litany of things that would get Earl fired up uh, among them, a distaste for Canadians. Apparently he was on some sightseeing tour in British Columbia. And the tour guide said, don't even look at these people as we cross the border. According to Earl, these are Earl's words, not mine told him, don't even look at these people as they get across the border. They hate Americans. And that would just, so anytime the, the, anytime you said Canada or any made any reference to the country of Canada, Earl's blood would boil oh uh, about how we have protected them for, you know, <laughs> 150 years or whatever. So he would always, Dom would get him fired up with stuff like this, or he'd ask him about Ted Kennedy or something like that and get all fired up. So the, <laughs> this was what golf was like at the golf, golf club of Dublin every Friday. It was a, it was a privilege to get to play with them. What was stunning about it was, is we would be the first one, first ones off, obviously at seven o'clock in the morning, we would play 18 holes of golf in two hours and 15 minutes. And if you play golf, you know how fast that is. So a couple of reasons we were able to do that. Number one, uh, the golf club of Dublin would take the governors off all our golf carts. So we got to go like road speed in the golf carts. <laughs> while was that was the first thing we did. That's nice. Second thing we did, it was very good. We had the perks of playing with former. Yeah, that's uh, really the only way. Players. I think that's really yeah, the only way you'll get me on a golf course is if you can take the governors off the carts and I can just yeah. zip, zip around. Time. Uh, the second reason we played really fast is because uh, Coop gave you everything inside of eight feet, which is an incredible <laughs> distance for a gimme. And yeah. Coop would say such things like, look, boys, we ain't playing the Ryder Cup today. Let's gimme. Let's move it along. <laughs> I mean, he was always in a hurry. Um, but what I will remember about Earl and um, among all of the great uh, interactions with him and his just incredible knowledge of football was that Earl Bruce at the Golf Club of Dublin was very upset. So he would have been... 76 at the yeah 80 yeah 76 at this time um earl bruce was very upset that they did not have senior tees <laughs> so they had three sets of tees they had the tips the member tees and the women's tees but there were no senior tees so earl oftentimes we'd play at the pro at the time we got a guy named west widows who's a great guy and earl would give him holy hell for the entire round about not having senior tees so <laughs> earl we would approach a hole and everybody would go to the member tees to tee off and Earl would start walking down the center of the fairway. 
and everyone's waiting to hit, not knowing what the hell's going on. Earl would walk down to the center fairway about 50, 60 yards, and he would put a tee in the middle of the fairway, and he hit it from the middle of the fairway. <laughs> and so you had to wait for him to then walk back. And he's not in any hurry. You had to sure. wait for them for him to walk back to get behind you so that you don't, you know, spray one into his melon. Um, so that was that was playing golf uh, with Earl Bruce. That's and funny. I did that every Friday for probably four years every you know from that's fantastic may, may until may until august you know so for three months every friday seven in the morning golf club of dublin that's what we did and um he was he's was was just a, a barrel of laughs to to play golf with and that then led to a camaraderie on the coaches show which i started to host and when img got the ohio state contract they decided one of the things that they wanted to do was, I can't remember if this coincided with IMG getting or not, but I remember they were integral in this. They wanted to do, they basically wanted to do college game day, Ohio state was the hope. Right. Right. right and right. so what we try, which probably, and I love all the people there, but it was probably doomed from the get go from a rating standpoint. I think they make a ton of money off of it, but you really can't pe compete with college game day. And so it upset a lot of people because they they wouldn't they they stopped getting the Sunday morning show, which was reacting from the game before with the coach. So we we got a lot of slings and arrows from that because people were upset of that. But anyway, we did a live show, and the original panel was Earl and Coop and Dom and I and Tress, and then eventually Urban. So I got to host the coaches' roundtables where we would break down the games, and it would be uh, Coop and Earl and I. A couple of right. things about the John Cooper Earl Bruce relationship. Number one, uh, they are very close. They're very close friends. But there was a tremendous amount of resentment, not resentment, that's the wrong word, uh, petty jealousy from, <laughs> uh, from Cooper to Bruce because Earl beat Michigan. Right. And John right. didn't. And it was right. this unspoken thing that we couldn't really talk about too much until Michigan week, but I'll get to that in a second. The petty jealousy the other way was the fact that Urban really, or I'm sorry, Earl really never got rich coaching football. He, he got comfortable, but he didn't get wealthy coaching football. And yeah, John he, was still, he was kind of operating on the whole like Woody he was. year to year. Yeah. yeah. So right. Woody was a hundred grand or whatever Woody made. And so when they hired Earl, that's what they paid him. And anybody yeah. who's ever got a job in their life knows that the only negotiation that matters is the first one. Because yeah. every paycheck you yeah. get after that comes that's off true. of that. Yep. So that's the only thing that matters, the first one. So, you know, Earl was replacing Woody. It's his alma mater. He coached under Woody, played, uh, didn't actually play on the field, but was a player under Woody. Woody's the reason he got into coaching. So he gets called home by the alma mater. He takes what they give him. And Earl never, because of that, Earl never got rich coaching football. <clears throat> Excuse me. Right. He, he got comfortable. John Cooper got rich. So whereas Earl Bruce wasn't a member of a, of a country club, John Cooper's at Scioto. John Cooper has uh, a really big house in Upper Arlington. Earl lived in a, a very nice, uh, I want to say it was a condo in, in Dublin. So that was, that was kind of always simmering, I think, both ways. I mean, there was a little of that both ways. And they would give each other hell constantly and yell at each other. But in the end, it was an endearing friendship, except for Michigan Week. So it comes <laughs> time for Michigan Week. And... We would, um, at the final segment of the show, you you know, like all shows, you'd give a prediction or whatever. And every year, Earl would say 
the same thing. And in a couple of occasions, even wore that fedora, which is just so lovely. And right. he would he would come at the end of it and we go, all right, Earl, you know, what are the keys to victory? And Earl would look into the camera and just menacing and say, and this is a piss poor Earl impression, but I'll do the best I can. You listen to me. You're nothing in this town. If you don't beat Michigan, do you hear me? Nothing. And oh, I, would, I would, you know, I'd laugh or whatever, you know, and we would, that'd be the end of the show. Yeah. So when, as every year walking off the set, Coop would say, man, Earl, why are you going to do that to me, man? Why are you going to bring that up to me every single year? You got to do that to me. And Earl wouldn't say anything, Johnny. He would just have a wry smile on his face. And he would just walk right out of the studio. <laughs> and it was his one little, I always felt like it was his one little, his that's one his, little piece his, of revenge. That yeah. was his thing was that. And you know I think if you, I think if you look at his, everything that's happened at Ohio state yeah. afterwards, his reward might not be monetarily, but rest assured the, the, the man who is as close to a son as he has, is perhaps on pace to be the greatest coach in the history of Ohio State, or on the mm-hmm. short list, him or Woody, whatever, however you want to rate him, Trust to whatever, yeah, on the very short list. And it, that's that's his. So his reward, I think of like Zach on the coaching staff. I think of the pride that he had when I saw him in the later years in the press box, watching his grandson and his sort of son in Urban. Yeah. on the field and having the success that they had, the pride that he had in that was, was incredible. So his reward came in other ways. Um, but Michigan was always, that was his come up. <laughs> that was his, that's how we got Coop <laughs> was with that. Which was pretty good. And there's a thousand more, but I'll, you know, they'll come as we continue to talk, but um, yeah. those are the ones that jump out to me. It just can kind of give you a window into, into who Earl Bruce was. Well, it's, he is a really interesting figure to me for a lot of different reasons. And, and part of that is because he, you know, he, he bridges that gap between a guy like Woody Hayes, who, you know, is such, even towards the end of his career was a huge anachronism in college football. I mean, like by the time he was out, like his time had been like, he could still coach, but his time had, had passed just the way the game had been changing. And Earl Bruce was not, by any stretch of imagination, a bad coach at Ohio State, um, but he never kind of lived up to those expectations. And it's just interesting to me to see how the expectations for the coaching position at Ohio State has kind of evolved, not in the terms of like, you know, success. I mean, obviously, Ohio State expects national championships and to win the Big Ten and all that kind of stuff every single year. But I guess more in how the expectations in terms of personality have kind of evolved and the expectations in terms of being a representative of the university in certain ways. And I'm not saying that Earl Bruce failed at that necessarily. What I am saying though, is that you can see how Ohio state really tries to mold the person that is going to be there. And, And the pressure of that is just unbelievable. And you can see how it affects different coaches differently. And Earl Bruce, I mean, he had some of the stuff in his, you know, during his tenure that people kind of groused about. I mean, some of the gambling and some of the other things really like put people on edge. But on the other hand, he beat Michigan. He emulated a lot of things that Woody Hayes did. Um, There was a lot of stuff that I think made him that quintessential Ohio State, quote unquote, Ohio State head coach. 
And, you know, it, it's he, to me, he's just a really fascinating figure for a lot of different reasons because he bridges that gap between kind of old school and new school. His coaching tree is insane. Stunning. Like, yeah, it's crazy. It is one of the craziest. Like, a lot of people don't realize this, but if you look at it, it is just one of the most insane things I've ever seen. So, and, and he, you know, and he's a legend at some other schools for completely just a, like creating essentially their football programs. So, to me, he's just an endlessly fascinating guy for his ups and his downs. And um, I don't know, he, he's a great part of Ohio State history. He's, he's just really going to be missed, especially for his passion uh, for the university and especially for reading Michigan, which, I mean, uh, that which never was made. unparalleled. Yeah. No, no. I would tell you that, um, that Earl Bruce, if you were to, you know, if you think about what is the quintessential Ohioan yeah. for, the, for the 20th century, it's Earl Bruce. Right. right? Yeah, I would agree with that. That's, yes. In a lot of ways. Yes. I mean, he really yeah. is. I mean, if you think about from the greatest generation, right. If you think mm-hmm. about plays at Ohio state on, you know, is on the team, what he talks him into being a coach then has a lot of success on the high school level in the state of Ohio, then goes to Maslin. He is the only coach in the history of Maslin. He coached two years at Maslin, 64, 65. He went undefeated both years. He's the only undefeated coach in the history of Maslin football. And he did it twice. Um, yeah. Which and he would often tell me that the pressure he felt at Ohio State was nothing compared to Matt Maslin. <laughs> that the the pressure to win at Maslin in '64 and '65 was unparalleled. Right. Um, so so he goes and does that. Then he's an assistant coach at Ohio State from '66 to '71, which is really the golden age of Woody. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, it's it's the beginning of the golden age of Woody. It's the '68, the Super Softs, all that. He's an assistant under Woody at that point. Um, he. Well, hell, he would have been on the same staff with Bo, wouldn't he? In '66, I think so. Yeah, or is Bo already at Miami at that point? Oh, you know, he—that's he, a good question. Tell you what, let's let's take a look. Let's try to figure that out because he might have been at Miami. I think that's. I might have, but they definitely knew each other and were close throughout. So he, oh yeah, he coaches under Woody, and then he he's he bridges the gap, you know, from Woody. Then then it, then it, so it's Woody and Bo, and then it becomes Earl and Bo. And in that famous game in 1987, where, you know, the, you know, before that game, the band is playing at his house and, you know, he's done wrong, you know, in the eyes of, of a lot, maybe he needed to go, but maybe not that way. Right. Um, and then in 87, you know, it's the fedora and it's the, the Earl headbands and Bo Schimbecker said this incredible quote after, after in 2001, it was long after, you know, 14 years later, um, but he, he had a great quote where he says, I always mind losing to Ohio State, but I don't mind so much today. Yeah. Talking about losing to Earl in 1987. Um, the other thing that's interesting about Earl um, is he was he was probably um, he was probably the he kind of represented the last of of the and to the point where it almost became outdated. Um, yeah. The last of the great Ohio in that. The thinking was, and in a way, you could draw an analogy to the steel industry and and a lot of those things that have economically gone wrong in Ohio, where in the mid to late eighties they just fell off a cliff. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, I think you can say to Earl Bruce's approach to coaching at Ohio State was so similar to Woody, and it didn't evolve. His idea right. was let's get the best kids from Ohio, and that's all we need. And John would often tell me, Cooper would often say that when he got to Columbus and he looked at the talent, he was shocked at how little of it there was at the end right. of Earl's tenure, that the recruiting had really fallen off. Um, and Coop, I don't know if Coop gets proper credit for for taking the Ohio State program to the national level 
and being able to go and recruit anywhere in the country to get Ohio State kids and, and to get kids to come to Ohio State. That's what Coop did. And um, and so there there was a uh there was a game passing you by feel to it from a recruiting standpoint, you know, where the program had just kind of stayed in neutral from Woody to Earl. It just kind of stayed where it was facilities, all of it. They were just way behind the coaching scale, coaching salary scale was way behind, which I've alluded to earlier. And so there was, he was kind of the last of that, I think a little bit. So um, it, he's a, he's a complicated guy and his, his legacy. I, I think you hit on it. I, li- these are the names folks, obviously urban, Pete Carroll, Nick Saban, yeah. Jim Tressel, Dom Capers, Glenn Mason, just to name a few. I mean, um, God, like that's, that's crazy. I that mean, is that's insane. Urban and, Urban and Nick are, are two of the five best coaches in the history of college football, right? Um, I think, and uh, you know, Pete Carroll isn't bad. <laughs> you know, he's one of the few guys who've won a national championship in a Super Bowl, so he's got that going for him, which is nice. And Tress is like fourth on the list, right? <laughs> <laughs> Trust was pretty damn good. Yeah. Um, so that's that's kind of, I think when you think about er- Earl's legacy, it'll be more those he influenced than what he actually did on the field. Yeah. And and that's, and there's nothing wrong with that. And, and you know, you look at a lot of other coaches that come out of Ohio and I, I think that's, that's been a big part of it. I mean, this, this entire region that we're in is, has been insane for just coaching in general uh, in the football game. Um, but you know, it's what's interesting to me. And again, it's not just, to me, the transitionary tr- transitionary stuff is is really interesting. But I also like, I think the expectations game that has changed and evolved at Ohio State over time really did start with like Earl Bruce. Like a, a lot of people felt that he was kind of unjustly kind of pushed out of Ohio State, and then yeah. I think Earl Bruce clearly felt that. I mean, I, I love the fact Obviously. that he started he started to like stick it to the administration, you know, wearing the fedora and, you know, kind of losing the weight a little bit and, and, you know, keeping his nose clean a little bit just to show like, I can do this. This is not, you're not going to tell me or help me or try to define who I am. I'm going to define who I am. I really like that. I I think that's Mm -hmm. really cool and admirable. Um, But one of the things that, you know, having done this, not for a long time, but having been in 11 warriors and, and, thinking about Ohio state and seeing how they operate and whatnot for the past eight years or so it is, it's such a, like one of the things that I think Ohio state fans shouldn't be super afraid of is any kind of sustained long-term malaise in the football program at Ohio state, or maybe even most of the major sports programs, because there's such an urgency in the university to have the best, to be the best, to beat the best um, that a guy like Earl Bruce who goes nine and three over and over and over again at most other places you would be ecstatic, but the the conditions that have been set up at Ohio state are such that you can't do that. Like you just can't like period. And I feel like, you know, Woody Hayes, if you look at his overall record, he had up years and down years, he had years where he didn't look great. And and maybe they didn't know what the next couple of years would look like in terms of recruiting or how the program is going to do in the big 10. But that was, that was acceptable. And at Ohio state, that's no longer acceptable. And in the 1980s, uh, I, I think that's the beginning of that. And then with Cooper, like, okay, great. We're going to win all these games. Don't be Michigan too yet. Too bad. We don't care. And so like, it's just yeah. that creation of those expectations, I think starts with Earl Bruce and in the 1980s and the results of which, which are urban Myers got to win 11 or 12 games every year and beat Michigan for us to consider that a successful season. That's what I think. So in like interesting about that. And so important about that. Yeah. 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 It became an arms race for sure. I mean, it, and, and 
you know, college football, it also, I mean, Earl also is a bridge from like the old era of college football and the yeah. bowls and the, you know, only the Michigan games on TV to mm-hmm. Coop, which was this, this boom of the television networks and all this national recruiting and all these things changed. Um, it's, it was a, he, he, he represents a lot of things. And um, I'll, I'll tell you one last quick one. And that is um, he fired Nick Saban. Now, yeah. he basically was told he had to fire somebody. Um, the, the record wasn't what it was expected to be, and he was told by the athletic director, uh, Earl, you got to fire somebody. And so he fired the whole defensive staff. Um, and one of the things that he was incredibly – we would be on these bowl trips. And I remember the Alabama one vividly um, in the national semifinal. Like, you know, we wanted to talk to Saban about being at Ohio State. And, and Earl was down there with us and Earl, you know, basically said, don't you dare ask him about it. Don't you ask me about that. <laughs> um, I never should. He was a good coach and I blew that. He was really bothered, you know, that that was the one thing that he, you know, was kind of forced to do, um, that he didn't want to do. And, and it bothered him that, that Saban was the guy, but his love for urban was unparalleled. I mean, it was just he, the proud, the pride he had, and one of the things that was so cool, and, and Urban really did this, but Urban really made the made Coop and and Bruce feel like kings on that campus when he got hired. Like they cool. had offices in the facility. Um, they they came and go as they pleased. He asked him to speak to his staff or speak to his players on a on a regular basis. Earl was Earl had carte blanche. He'd go wherever he wanted, and it meant everything to Earl to be treated that way. And, and urban did that. And you don't see that from urban much because we only see like the, you know, the veneer of him and the steely competitor and all that stuff. But boy, do you want to see him light up, have Earl Bruce walk into a room and he will do it. And, and I would just close with this. It is appropriate who is speaking Wednesday at his public. It's appropriate that Dom to is the MC because you want to talk about a friendship. That was a sitcom. The two of them. <laughs> I mean, that was the funniest that some of the hardest I've laughed in my life was Dom and Earl and Dom goading him and getting him wound up and him just lose, you know, getting all mad at him. And, it, and but so there was all of that. But there was also Dom would go to his house eight, nine o'clock in the morning and take him to the uh, the the uh, uh, the workout place in Dublin, the city workout place or whatever. And mm-hmm. he would go up there and work out with him and. And Earl would yell at him about working out and and they would do that. So the fact that Dom's MC in it is appropriate. The fact that Earl and Tress are speaking is perfect. And Earl wouldn't yeah. have it any other way. I mean, this was Earl was an Ohioan and he was a lion of a man. And so this he would be pleased with the way that this is going to play out publicly, at least tomorrow. So um, he was a great, great man and a, and a good friend and a real joy of my life to to work with him the the amount of time that I didn't have all the interactions that I did with him. And, and I think it was cool um, that he was properly appreciated in the end uh, by Buckeye Nation. And I cannot tell you what it meant when he would do, when he would give those Michigan speeches. Yeah. Like that he was still wanted, that he, he loved talking about Michigan and he loved, uh, you know, that week. Like it was just different for him that week. And you'd even hear it in the coaches show two weeks before, we're two weeks from that big one. That's the only <laughs> game that matters. That's the only thing that matters. He would say it over. I mean, it's just ingrained. So um, rest in peace, my friend. He was, uh, he was a prince of a man and uh, an Ohio lion, to say the least. Uh, coming up next, we'll give you a little preview of the NFL draft. Also, ask us anything. 
Uh, before we do that, though, we do encourage you to visit 11 Warriors Dry Goods for shirts, hats, stickers, and more drygoods.11warriors.com. We should do something. I wonder we should. I wonder if we could do something as I'm, we're just doing this on a podcast. I'm just making things up, and we got to talk to Czar about it. But it'd be fun to do something uh, for Earl's charity. Uh, oh, yeah. Goods. That would be cool. Yeah, that's you know, something that we should think about. You know, with fedoras or something, that'd be, a, I don't know. I'm just thinking maybe the Earl headbands. I don't know. Yeah, Homage will no, probably be do cool. it while we're talking about it. But I don't even know if you could do it. But <laughs> it'd be something fun to do for uh, uh, for charity, I think. Um, NFL draft is this week. This is, you know, John, this is a little, you know, it's more quiet. We just have Denzel Ward, who I think is going to be a first rounder for sure. Yeah. You know, somewhere in the top 15 picks. And then it's kind of fill in the blank guys down the road. Denzel Ward seems like a surefire can't miss. So I think everything that's been said about him, you know, is appropriate after him. Two guys that I'm kind of be curious about are Sam Hubbard, who I think is going to be a really good pro Billy. If Billy didn't have the injury, he probably would have been a back end of the first round. Billy will be a 10 year pro too. And the other guy uh, that I think could be very good is Jerome Baker. Um, mm-hmm. I think, I think those, I'll be very curious to see where those guys land. As we get uh, you know into the into the second round, third round of the draft later this week, Baker strikes me as a guy who's going to have like a, just a really long NFL career. You know, maybe not like yeah. an all you know an all pro or anything like that, but just a guy who has a really solid NFL career, mm-hmm. uh, finding a niche and just doing a great job with it. I'm a little surprised. I, I mean, I know Billy's got the injury, but I like I don't know. I I, I would not be shocked if he still ended up in the back end of the first round somewhere or somebody takes a flyer on him because he's just yeah. he was so good at that position for in, in just yeah. you know, walking into it. I mean, he just, I really think a team would be smart to take a chance on that guy. Um, I know you got to come back from the injury and that sucks, but it's, I think he's really going to have a really great NFL career. Um, you know, and Hubbard that I am really surprised at that Hubbard is not, you know, maybe being, I mean, I'm not saying he's going to fall to like the sixth or seventh round or something like that, but I, I am a little surprised that he's not being as respected as I kind of expected him to be. Cause I personally yeah. got a lot of physical tools that will allow him to be successful. Um, I, you know, he's not going to be like Josh Allen or something like that, but I just, I really think that he's going to be a, a really good NFL player as well. I mean, and the other thing, what I find interesting, I really am curious sometimes about, how teams evaluate and how this all works out because one guy like for like cam hayward i thought was going to be a guy that people would just talk up all over the place and whatnot and he you know he's had an incredible nfl career but i, I don't think yeah. he had really the kind of hype that was comparable to some of the other guys that were in that draft and he's he's been one of the best nfl players for ohio state in the past like five six years so yes yeah that happens i mean a lot of time one thing that ohio state's reputation is you know beyond peer is on identifying and developing NFL talent. I mean, they've just yeah. done it. I mean, the trust did it. Urban's taking it to a whole nother level. Urban and Marathi taking it to a whole nother level. And, um, and so the, and that's how urban sells the program too, is that we will prepare you for the NFL. I mean, that's their whole pitch is that, and, and that's everything from, Hey, if you're going to play in the NFL, you got to play in the snow. You might as well do it here too. So, I mean, all of it is built around the NFL. It's a brilliant pitch. It speaks to, I think, you know, why they're having so much success in recruiting and have some certainly got there. But, um, you, you know, your Hubbard thing is interesting. I, I had wondered about this. I wondered like, boy, what is the reason for that? And and the one thing I, I was in the back of my head, I thought, I wonder if the fact that I believe there's two top five picks still at Ohio State and that maybe mm-hmm. while you're watching tape of Sam, you right. see Rosa right. and Chase Young and you go, holy hell. 
I mean, they got <laughs> they got Joey Bosa part two, and they got Jadavion Clowney. Yeah. You know, still or Miles Garrett. I mean, they've got. I wonder if like Sam got lost in the tape a little bit. I and, think that's probably a know, fair analysis. Yeah, that's only thing that came kept coming back to me was like i wonder if they throw in that ohio state tape and they go yeah six is pretty good but holy hell look have you seen 97 and two look at those two and i, I wonder you know because that would be natural to look at those two and go because sure. they're otherworldly i mean Chase well, is gonna crazy. in two years to be number one overall and nick will be top five next year right and i was about to say i mean joey like with all the success that he's having in the nfl i mean nick is a clone of joe i mean they are they're mm-hmm. they're so similar and their That's game, right. their play style. I mean, it's not just the position. I mean, they play the game almost exactly the same way. And you're right. I mean, a GM is going to look at that and go, well, if we can get Joey Bosa part two, I mean, that's back to the future. Part two is pretty good too. I think we're going to be all right. Like we want the sequel if it's good and that's what they're going to get. So I, I mean, I, I find the way they evaluate these guys to be really interesting because part of it, I think is like really well done. Uh, you know, legwork where they're just reviewing film all the, uh, you know, all the live long day. And they're just going over and over and over, over every single play and every single snap that anyone's ever had in their entire lives. And then part of it is weird intangibles and dumbass questions that they ask in these interviews and all these insane little, like, you know, points of light that they just see, you know, with their eyes closed or something. And they just like throw a dart at a board and go, uh, Sam Darnold. Right. Like, I don't yeah. like, it's weird to me because it feels like for an organization in the NFL that is so reliant on metrics and analysis and stuff like that, that they look at these guys and go, ah, my gut doesn't feel it. And then they, they'll, they'll overlook a guy who, you know, clearly has the, you know, should be a good player. That's the NFL's battle right now though. But that's the bat. I mean, I'm in Cleveland. I see it. I I just saw it play out with the Browns. I mean, there's analytic guys who said, look, it will pay off if we suck for two years. And we can pick high. It's going to yeah. pay off, and it did. I mean, they went one in thirty-one, but now they've got a pretty good young base, and they're going to pick one in four in this draft. They got three twos. I mean, they they they're going to have. They can totally change their roster. Like if you're a you're a Bengals fan, you would switch places with a Browns fan right now for their future over yours. Oh like, yeah, I they're, mean they're set up. Provided you know, so, provided so they the actually. Provided they actually well, coach that talent up, I mean, it's, well, right. You know. But that's the battle. Is is that's right. why that's why Jimmy Haslam didn't let Sashi Brown stick stick around. Excuse me, is because he didn't trust him to identify talent and draft it. That's yeah. why. That's why John Dorsey's making the pick. But Sashi Brown's plan worked. And so when you talk about that, you know, the analytics versus gut, that's that's a battle that's being fought in the NFL on a daily basis because there's analytic guys who say, look, these are the measurables. This is what this guy does and there's fo- the old school football guy and they're not saying one's right one's wrong but the old old school football's guys go no nah, i don't feel it i don't feel it no. and they so they butt heads constantly it, it's fascinating and i do think though everybody we've talked about uh ward price baker and hubbard i think all those guys will play in the nfl for a very long time i think they'll all play in the nfl for a, yeah. and they'll be very comfortable doing so i mean i think you're going to get good football play and then next year it's going to be another it'll be another big class next year so they urban's got this thing going and this is you know kind of where we're at from a developing talent to the nfl standpoint to say yeah, the least. I, I just kind of hope i kind of hope that one of the ohio teams decides to actually draft maybe one or two of them ever <laughs> you know and <laughs> the hell i got up here in 2015 when yeah. i i went on the radio up here and i said just draft best hell, by guy. the way i'm just saying like i said draft best available buckeye 
Yeah. And people, you're such a Buckeye homer. And I'm like, no, no, no. Oh, Michael no, Thomas that's not justifiable. It was just, I thought you were saying they're giving the Browns justifiable hell. I'm sorry. They should not be oh, giving no. you any hell for that. They were giving me hell for, for saying, they were saying I was a Buckeye homer. Well, then I wasn't saying, in this market long. Nobody yeah. knew anything. They, oh, you're a Buckeye homer. All you want to, oh, Buckeye's Buckeye. I'm like, no, no, no. Zeke Elliott, Nick, Joey Bosa, Michael Thomas, Taylor Decker, they're good. Right. They're real good. And if you take the, the best one every slot, you're going to have a hell of a football team. Oh and they didn't. They didn't take any of them. Uh, the most maddening one was passing on Michael Thomas for Corey Coleman, who they're probably going to end up cutting by the time this thing's all said and done. Uh, so I, I love the draft, and I, I, you know, I look forward to watching it this week. Um, do we have any Ask Us Anything this week, my friend? We do. Uh, if you guys would like to ask us anything, of course, you can do that by sending us an email. You can send us an email to uh, dubcast at 11warriors.com, or you can send us a question on Twitter at 11dubcast. Um, so this is from uh, Alvin, our good friend Alvin, and he wants to know. And this is this is actually particularly relevant to me, um, at least recently. Have you ever stayed up all night after a shocking sports game or moment while contemplating the meaning of life? So has there ever been a game or some kind of sports moment where you're just like so floored by what just happened that you're just like, I need to reevaluate uh, how I live my life for a little bit, either positively or negatively? Not as an adult, as a kid. Yeah, you know, definitely as a kid. I think I've said before on this show that I loved Kansas basketball as a kid, and so in '88, um, Danny Manning and they were like a six seed. They played number one Oklahoma in the national championship game. The game's tied fifty to fifty at the half. It's Stacy King against Danny Manning, and Danny the Miracles win like eighty-seven, seventy-nine, or something like that. And I remember I couldn't sleep. Like it was, <laughs> I was so wired from it. Not as an adult though. I mean, I there's certainly been moments that have been. You know, I, certainly after the after the national championship game in 2015, you know, I was working, but I mean, I don't remember sleeping that night. I remember being on air all night, you know, on Channel 10 and then um, sleeping for a couple hours and catching a plane the next morning, at like seven in the morning. So I don't remember sleeping much after that one because it was there was quite a euphoric high from that one. Yeah, I I would say the only time that I really had like a situation where I was just super wired and just completely out of it. Uh, was probably not even the national championship game because at that point I just reached the Zen light stake or state of like, you know, complete acceptance. Like whatever happens, happens. I was like, yeah, this is, <laughs> I'm with house money, whatever. I don't care. Uh, but that sugar bowl before then, I wanted, mm. like, I just don't, I really don't yeah. get super emotionally invested um, anymore in Ohio State football, at least in terms of like, I don't live and die over the results of games. Like I really care and I really want them to win. I get excited for games. But I don't like fall into a funk if they lose. I mean, I used to when I was younger and when I was a kid. Um, but man, I wanted that Sugar Bowl win so damn much. I I cannot like. <laughs> I was just losing it, and I was I had been telling myself for a month that they're going to lose the game, uh, or not for a month, but you know for several weeks that they're going to lose the game, just probably to stave off the effects of what would happen if they did. And when they won, not only did I write like five articles after that, but I proceeded to drink like an entire bottle of like the cheapest uh, fake champagne uh, <laughs> that you can buy at giant Eagle. But it was, um, that was probably, I would say the, the, the one that really kept me up um, when I was in college and they lost the national championship going to Florida. I just went to bed at like, like as soon as the game was over, I was like, okay, we're done. We're done with this. I'm not That's enough of that. Yeah, well, that one you could leave it like in the third quarter. You could call it a day too. You didn't have to stick around. 
Oh, well, so we went to the, <laughs> me and my roommate went to the shot to watch it. And at halftime, we we're like this. No, we're not. <laughs> and so we That's walked enough. back to our dorm and uh, we had it on the background just for completion's sake, I guess. I don't know why. Yeah. Stupid. And then as soon as like the confetti started falling, we clicked it off and we just went to bed. We said, screw this. Um, <laughs> not worth our time. Uh, no. All right. So this one's uh, from Lewis. He says, hello, old friends. Uh, I haven't had an ask me anything in a while. Jim Nance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but fear not, he's remained a loyal listener throughout the offseason. Oh, thank you, Lewis. I appreciate that. Um, he's got a question that's be- been debated before, but he wants our personal opinions on it. Uh, this goes back to the college football playoff committees. He says that currently their job is to choose the best four teams for the playoff, which is not necessarily the quote, and he put this in bold, uh, most deserving four teams for the playoff. And he says, why? Why do we even play the games then? Let's just let the highest ranked recruiting class teams over the previous four years play in the college football playoff by definition that they're the quote best. I personally believe that we do not deserve to be in the playoff in 2016 nor to Bama in 2017, even though I feel both of those teams are one of the best on paper. Um, He says, basically, in order to be deserving, quote unquote, you should at minimum win your conference. That's it. So what is your what is your take on, on best versus most deserving here? I think if he were to amend that statement to have to win your conference to uh, win your conference before the conference championship games, I'd be fine with it. Okay. Because I think winning your conference is harder than winning a conference. A conference championship game can be fluky. Uh, someone can get hurt. Random things can happen. Sure. Um, like it's kind of the difference between like the English premier league and MLS, like English. If you win the EPL, you are the best for throughout the entire season. And that's how I feel about college football's regular season. That's why I love college football more than any other sport to watch because every game theoretically matters and counts. And the conference championship games have changed that. Whereas mm-hmm. if you win that, you could, it's almost, I mean, the biggest, the biggest joke of all time was Alabama losing to LSU and then getting to, getting to play them again in the, in the national championship game. Oh yeah. That was stupid. I mean, that's yeah. laugh. That's crazy. Right. So, I mean, um, having not even won their conference, like LSU beats Alabama, wins the SEC title game, and then has to play Alabama again for the national title because Notre right. Dame choked or Ohio State voluntarily decided not to play for random reasons. So that you know that was nonsense. I'm with him on. I actually agree with him. I I think that it should be most deserving. Now the criteria for most deserving is a little tricky, but the one thing that bothered me. I think he makes the great point. We did not deserve to be in in 2016. No, Alabama did not deserve to be in in 2017. Alabama won the national title. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> Alabama getting in 2017 is, is to me, um, is, is a shame that Ohio state didn't get in in 2015. So right. It, it, there's no, at this point, this committee was supposed to get rid of the shadow of doubt. And all they have done is create more. So, you know, for me, I, I, I do like the idea of most deserving over best. I, I do like that. I, I, I prefer that. So I, I think I, I understand your point and I, I agree with it to an extent. What I would say is that I personally, I take the opposite track with a caveat that uh, my ideal world does not exist. And I think <laughs> the best, well, no, but seriously, I think the best teams should play. I, I don't think, I don't think you can Regardless say. Of record? Most, yeah. To an extent. Yes. To an extent. And and let me explain this by saying that 
when you say most deserving, then you've got to make judgment calls based on conference strength. That's essentially what you're asking people to do because the SEC was not a great conference in the past two seasons, really. And you can make a reasonable argument that some of the lower tier conferences that people don't have, I mean, I'm not talking about like Sunbelt or anything like that, but some of the other conferences are in many ways just as difficult to, you know, win as the SEC is. And so like, you know, I'm not, again, I'm not saying like Sunbelt or Mac or anything like that, but like the ACC, which a lot of people tend to like crap on a little bit, I would say it'd be much more difficult to win than the SEC has been like overall in the past couple of seasons. Um, I think the big 10 has been more difficult, frankly, in a lot of ways. So when you're saying most deserving, you're, you're asking people to say like, okay, well, which conference is really more difficult to, to attain because winning a conference championship to me does not necessarily make you deserving. Um, on the other hand, the reason why I say best with the caveat is that I believe that because teams evolve so much during the course of a season, I don't want to penalize a team necessarily that maybe lost a conference game on the first week of the season. And then for some reason that precluded them from winning their division or something like that. And because, and they couldn't, you know, advance to the conference championship, some fluky thing like that happens. And some teams have been destroying somebody or other teams by 50 points since October. I don't want to exclude them from the playoff. What that means though, is that it, it forces the committee to, be imaginative and they're not imaginative and that's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. So a team well, like, part there, yeah, the hard part there though is, is, is there's, you can't put any of the criteria into stone, right? That's the problem is that right. you can't, there's no, there's no, it's just what you see. That's the hard part is because like what you just said, an early loss or a late loss, I would rather uh, reward it. Like, let's say, let's use the Alabama, let's use the Alabama or Michigan, Ohio state's fine. Let's say Ohio state and Michigan are both undefeated and they play in in the, in the last game of the year and you lose by a point in Ann Arbor or in Columbus, either one, that loss should carry more value. That should be a more valuable loss than losing by a field goal at Iowa in the big 10 opener. So when you lose, uh, you know, it's all, it's all great. Well, I think what you need is you just need people you can trust on this on this committee, and you need people without agendas. That's why I don't think there should be anybody who's tied to an athletic department on the oh, on the damn I committee. I one hundred percent agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. Crazy. One hundred percent agree. Absolutely. That's insane that they do that. I don't it's understand. Nuts. I don't get. The and I know the media is stupid. like public enemy number one. I'm going to tell you something. The Associated Press college football poll members. That's as good of a cross section of of college football viewers as you're going to find. No kidding. That yeah. those people watch the game. I was and I now I, I admittedly I was an AP voter for a few years, um, but but I saw like how serious I took it, and I know other people took it seriously as well in terms of DVRing all the games and watching a ton of football and making your ballot and doing it right. That's those people job. put the time. It's the yeah. job to cover the game. The idea that an athletic director. Can can watch all of the games and a bunch of old retired coaches and Condoleezza Rice like it it's just nuts <laughs> like but but of course this goes back to the you know it goes back to the whole NCAA college sports model of you know these these authority figures on high right. who control everything and so right. and yeah like- I mean I absolutely so I don't have I mean I think the best way to do it would be to use the Associated Press and have them decide the four teams that play have those six people with that. vote. Then have those have those four them decide on the four teams it's going to play. I mean they're immune I, to, for the most part they're immune to. And by the way the AP 
it's it's uh it's spread out throughout the country. Right. It's so not it's you're not, not getting just certain regionally overrepresented. No, it's not. There's no regional bias because it's weighted properly. So yeah. I you know to me that makes more sense than this right. random and committee. It, so what I'm saying, and, and I guess in a roundabout way, what I'm trying to say is that I am still super salty at the idea that a team like UCF is, it's not just that they were denied the opportunity to play in the college football playoff. It's that they never will be. That's exactly right. That is exactly my point. It's not right. It's not just last season. It's the fact that a team like that never will. And me personally, I support the idea of the best teams because I think UCF was one of the four best teams last season. I truly believe that. I think they could have played and and played well in the playoffs. And I think they could have beaten those teams. I think they even had a shot at a national championship. Didn't they beat Auburn? It was like playing lights out towards the end of the year, but they were great. That team was great. Yeah. Yeah. And the idea that they would be denied on the basis of not being quote deserving enough is ridiculous to me. So in a perfect world, the, the committee would recognize that this is a, one of the four best teams in the country and that they would select them. And then, you know, large fan bases be damned and they'd go for that. But I know that's not going to happen. And that's what frustrates me about the people who are in charge. And that's why I totally, that's why I'm totally on board with the idea of, of turning that selection process over to people who I think would take more risks and would recognize the fact that these teams have played difficult schedules, even though they're not in the, you know, larger conferences. Um, so to me, that's something that I think they need to rectify going forward. Cause I want to see that kind of diversity in the college football playoff. And I, don't want to see another SEC versus SEC national championship game. No, that is, that's it, no one not, needs that. Putting my feelings aside for the SEC, <clears throat> it is just boring, soul crushing. It's football. just not right. It's actually. just not right to suggest that the two best teams in the country are from the same conference on right, a regular exactly. basis. And right. I'd say the same thing if it was Ohio State and Michigan. Yeah, I would. Yeah, that's not something that should be happening with any kind of regularity. No. It, it's mm-hmm. it's it's dumb. Yep. So hopefully they 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 get their act together a little bit and start maybe giving credit to some of these teams because and recognize the parity that's really starting to emerge I think in college football especially regards to these up and coming coaches that can transform these teams very quickly. I agree. So I agree. That's and that's that's, that's ask us anything. That was a really good final question because that gets me hot. Like, I want to see. That's what that was I like love a June, about college football. That's a whole June podcast, John. You yeah, man. Say that. We get it in an hour on that in June. Yeah, and we'll and we'll have to revisit that. But that's that kind of story that UCF had is what draws me to college football. That's what I love about yeah. that sport is is yeah. it allows the underdog and these these crazy backwater schools to and not you know, I mean UCF's not a backwater school; it's one of the largest schools in the country. But it allows these programs that people have never heard of to make noise and to accomplish things. And I I want to see more of that, not less of that. So yeah, it's the Boise State. I mean, for a decade. Yeah. You know what yeah. they did for a decade, but never got to never got to the mountaintop. Got close, but never to the mountaintop. Right, exactly. And I, I, I want to see them have. I want to see those teams have that opportunity because they deserve it. All right, I'm with you. All right, pal. Good stuff out of you. And uh, keep those ask us anything's coming because it's getting to be dry season, folks. So we'll take uh, <laughs> take yeah. whatever, take whatever we can do. Uh, good stuff out of you, buddy. We will visit next week uh, another edition of the Dubcast. Yep, absolutely. See you next week.